Good morning, saints. It's good to be with you. Um, thank you, Tricia, for reading that, that long passage. This is one of my favorite psalms, and I'm encouraged and excited to be able to share it with you and, and think about it together. Um, and as we do, I, I just want to share, there, there's a children's book that I've often been, I, I've shared with a number of you, this book that I, it's a little board book called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Does anyone know that, that book? Raise your hand. Great. Love it. Uh, the premise is this. It's a, it's a little, like a baby book. Uh, the premise is a family is going on a bear hunt, and as they go along, they encounter various obstacles like long grass, a river, a field of mud, a dark forest, a blizzard. And when they, they hit each of these obstacles, the, the refrain is, oh no, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, oh no, we got to go through it. This book, to me, is a perfect picture of challenges and difficulties and hardships. They come to us when we least expect or even want them. And as much as we want to escape or get around hard and painful, unwanted aspects of our lives, we can't go over them. We can't go under them. Oh, no, we got to go through them. Our passage this morning, Psalm 40, is a psalm of David that speaks to the difficult situations we find ourselves in. And then the unrestrained mercy of God that is available to us. And the resilient hope that such mercy cultivates in our lives if we look to him. So with that, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are, that you are a strong and mighty tower, that you are worthy of all our praise. We ask now that you would guide us as we consider your word. I, I pray that this would not be a lecture. I pray that we would not hear just to get more information, but rather we would meet with you, that you would be pleased to meet with us, that we would leave having met with the living God. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Listen to those opening words again. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This psalm begins with David celebrating the deliverance of the Lord out of a dark and difficult season. Now, we actually don't know what this dark and difficult season was, but does it really matter? What I mean is most of us can relate to a situation that David found himself in and that he had to wait on the Lord because the reality is we're all in a pit at some point or another. Friends, how are you doing this morning? Anyone in here feel like they're in a season that is overrun with frustrations, with fears, with anxiety, with grief, hardship, complicated relationships? Some of you may feel so trapped and stuck, not just from outside circumstances, but from 
but by your own making. You feel enslaved to sinful habits or stuck in in the consequences of poor and selfish decisions. And even if you're not in such a season, no doubt that you've been at some point in your life. So what's it like for you, friend? Or what was it like? What is it like to be in a season of distress? David likened his situation to being in a pit of destruction. Star Wars fans, I think of that like that sand monster that people are getting thrown into. A miry bog. If you've ever watched like Bear Grylls in the Scottish Highlands, these are kind of mossy areas that you step in and it's just, it looks like it's firm ground, but you step in and it is just cold, wet, and mossy weeds that wrap up, wrap you up and then suck you down. What would you call your season? Often when I when people are in a season of grief and, or, or stress and anxiety or grief, I, I often ask them to close their eyes. And then I ask them this, this question. Paint me a picture of what it feels like on the inside. And whether it feels like you're being weighed down, that you're being suffocated, that you're being pressed on all sides, that you're being pulled in all sorts of different directions, whether you feel like you're being carried along by a current that is too strong, the point is, it stinks to be in that spot. And this is where David begins. He can't go over it. He can't go under it. He's got to go through it. It's in this boggy pit that he waits The ESV, actually, the translation that we have, it says, he waited patiently. I think that's probably too polite. It's more properly, I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. Has anyone felt like that before? It's okay to say yes or amen or raise a hand, like, thank you so much for the four people. Great. A couple years ago, I had a serious cavity in the back of my, my, my wisdom tooth. Um, it was awful. Thankfully, my dentist fit me in as an emergency, but the tooth needed to come out, and it was not a procedure that she was able to do. So she gave me a temporary medicated filling. Let me tell you about temporary medicated fillings they hurt way more than whatever you had in there before. And they sent me to a dental surgeon. So that was a Thursday. On Friday, I saw the surgeon. They checked me out and said, all right, great, come back Monday. We'll take it out. That weekend was awful. It was hard to concentrate, hard to do anything other than carefully, carefully grip my teeth and try to make it through the weekend. Surviving on Aleve and Tylenol. Waiting is hard. That weekend was brutal, but after seeing the dental surgeon on that Monday, getting extracted, the pain was gone. Waiting was a blessing. It was worth the wait because it was 
coming out of that, it was relief. David goes, waiting on the Lord is worth it. Consider how he attends to David. He he inclined himself. That means he turned his full attention towards David. God bothered himself to be aware of what David was going through. And he pulls him up like a little kid that trips and falls down or is stuck. And, and, And the Heavenly Father picks David up under the arms and he sets them down on solid ground. And he puts a new song in David's heart. The Lord's deliverance in this moment isn't just that David isn't in a bad situation anymore. He's been transformed. He has come through as a a different person. The song in his heart is a paradigm shift for him. And that's what I want us to see. Many of, the, many of you will know this psalm. If you're a U2 fan, the song 40 is this song. I know there's like two U2 fans. I get it. This is a famous song, but what the deliverance that David is writing about and that we were reading about is more than an escape from circumstances or for our personal comfort. David may have been writing about a particular difficult season or a season of life that the Lord had acted decisively to bring him through. And we can certainly look at David's life and try to line up which one it was. Maybe it was in battle or in his personal life or when he was being hunted by his own son. This is to say that the Lord does heal sickness. He does provide work opportunities. He does fix marriages. He does bring clarity and peace where anxiety once was. He provides restful vacations after long and tiring seasons. And it is legitimate to wait and ask the Lord to bring us into a new situation in these seasons of hardship. But if we see this passage as just God stepping in to fix our circumstance and our situation just to make us more comfortable, we are missing the point. If we see God's rescue as a way to make our lives more comfy, then we will continue to live small, self-centered lives that try to live it up and avoid the hardships. God's deliverance has done the opposite for David. It hasn't made his life, his, made David to play smaller but bigger. God's deliverance doesn't send David back into a safe, comfortable life and back to business as usual. It compels him to boast, to celebrate, to rejoice, and to proclaim the goodness, the beauty, the wonder-working acts of God. It stirs in him a more resilient and steadfast faith. If you're you're just visiting here, we're so glad you're here. For those that have been here for a while, I've spoken individually and also publicly, that 2018 to 2020 were some of the darkest years of my life. Burnout, depression, the wheels were coming off. 
And the reality was is initially I wanted to cut and run. I wanted to go over it. I wanted to go under it. But God said, no, you got to go through it. And what having to wait on the Lord in, that, in those couple years, God in his kindness inclined himself to my cries. He set my feet on solid ground. He gave me a new song, a song in my heart. And what I mean by that is this. It didn't just get me into a better situation. I am thankful now for those years. I wouldn't have written them myself, but I will certainly not change them. Because what the Lord has done over those years was actually bring clarity to who he is in my life. It has brought resolve. It's actually brought joy. It was his grace that met me. And that's what he intends to do for all of us. Not just fix our situations, but meet us. Attend to us. And so now, I have a renewed song in my heart because of God's work in my life. This is what David has. I used to have this killer idea for an iPod uh, commercial. For those who remember the, the original iPod commercials, they were the silhouettes and people dancing and you just saw the wires, right? I thought it would be fun if the commercial was somebody walking around with just headphone wires and then just putting the jack in people's arms. And then a different song would hit every time. And then the commercial would end with the, the, the iconic Apple logo and with just the question, what's your theme song? Isn't that a great commercial? If I was only in marketing, 2008. This is the new song that David sings for the rest of his life. He has a new theme song because of the deliverance of God. It's not just my life is better now. His, his outlook is changed. If you have trusted in Jesus, you know a deliverance that David is writing about. You who were once in the pit of destruction, in the miry bog, cut off from God due to your own sin. You know then that the Lord has inclined himself towards you. He has set your feet on solid ground. And he has put a new song in your heart. The song of God's salvation. The song of the gospel. The hope of Christ. David is celebrating in this psalm the covenant love and mercy of God that not only delivered but transforms the one who is delivered. And as he's transformed, he goes, I can't keep this to myself. And because the point is that the Lord's deliverance is more than escape from our circumstances or for our personal comfort, it transforms us and then gives us a testimony. It's meant to be a testimony for others. The Lord's rescue isn't just for David, but it's for others as well. Look at verse four, uh, the, the second half of verse 3. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Then verse five of, excuse me, 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
When life is hard, which it can be, we all have a choice. Will we trust in the Lord, or will we try in our own might to somehow go over, go under the difficulty? We can try to escape or ignore it. We can try to come up with some hack. Not banging on Instagram, but Instagram is full of influencers who are peddling lies by inviting you to follow them into this blessedness. Hey, this is the way that you'll really find happiness. This is the new diet. This is the new workout. This is the new clothes. This is the new thing. This is the career. This is how you, the get rich scheme. Saying, in other words, these are the people that turn to the proud. I know the way. These are the people that turn to the lie. If you just get this next thing, everything will be better. I call it just around the corner syndrome. If I just turn this corner, everything's good. But here's the thing. When you turn the corner, when you're just trusting yourself, the corner keeps moving further away. David, who has just been in the soup, says there's only one way to find blessedness. The fullness of life that we're actually longing for and craving. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. It seems foolish, but he goes, hey, Trust in the Lord. Wait. David is writing this psalm as a congregational song that the the people of Israel would sing to remind them that his deliverance was meant to be a testimony for them as well. David wants people to see what the Lord has done which would lead them to fear, which is to be in awe of the Lord, which would then lead them to entrust their lives. I think it's beautiful that he goes, that many will see. They'll at least be interested, but that doesn't rescue anybody. And then fear, meaning, who is this God? How incredible is he? And when they see, and then they're in awe, then... David says the point is that you would actually put your trust in the Lord too. Look at where it says in verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. It's interesting that David has begun in the singular, but now he's saying, hey, this is true for all of us in the congregation. He's standing as a representative and speaking on behalf of the people. He goes, you have multiplied the works that you've done, and your thoughts towards us. None can compare it with you. And I'm going to tell of them and tell of them and tell of them. I'll never get to the end of it, but I'm going to keep telling you anyway. In verses 9, we see, picks up, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David, speaking on behalf of God's people, say, when we trust the Lord, we will know the salvation, the faithfulness, the wonders of God to such a degree that we won't be able to count them, but it will be our delight to keep talking about them. 
And when that happens, as we celebrate the works of God that are, are, are more numerous than we can count, what happens is faith increases, which bolsters the people, which draws them to see the beauty and majesty of the Lord all the more. It's this beautiful feedback loop that actually strengthens the people to walk in faith regardless of what comes. David's deliverance was meant to be a testimony as well. And this is the pattern that we actually see from the very beginning of the Bible, a beginning of time itself. God made Adam and Eve in his image, and what was their job to do? Be fruitful and multiply. If they are the image bearers of God, as they multiplied, God's image would be multiplied. And so God's glory would spread around the world. That was the purpose. Sin came in. But God's purposes don't end. The people of Israel, they were to be the same thing. You know, Ronald Reagan didn't coin the term to be a city on the hill. I thought I would get a laugh. One, two. But he said, in the 80s, he said that America would be the city on the hill. He's actually quoting the Bible. This is what God's people, as they were redeemed and, and rescued, as they were delivered, they were to be the people of God and to show the way not to be exclusionary, but to say, to attract others to them, to the God of the universe. This is also why in the temple there's like the, there's the court of the Gentiles. It was that the nations would come. God's work of deliverance in our lives is not just meant to make our lives easier. It's also meant to be a beautiful, beautiful song of testimony to others. The testimony is an invitation for others to join the celebration. It's an opportunity to tell of the faithfulness of God in our own lives as a means to encourage and strengthen others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said that he tells this story about he was in such a bad state that he thought he had the death sentence, that he was going to die. But God delivered and comforted him. And so he tells this story for the purpose of telling the Corinthians, hey, the comfort that I've received, I'm not keeping to myself. I want to share it with you so that you would be comforted as well. He says, the comfort that we receive is meant to then be used to comfort others. Friends, the Lord so comforted me in those couple years in 2018 and 2020. The reason I love counseling is because the Lord comforted me. It is this blessing to actually be able to say, no, God actually invites us to something far more beautiful, and full to people who are going through hard times. That's why I love it. With the comfort that I've received, the Lord has encouraged me to share that comfort, and that's all I want to do. How can you do this? Well, we can tell of the salvation that we have. How often do you tell people what Jesus has done in your life? 
And I will confess that I don't tell my kids as much as I need to about how about my own testimony. They know parts. But I think that's an easy way for parents to say, hey, this is how Jesus changed my life. To tell family members, to tell your spouse, hey, this is how, see, Jesus is encouraging me right now. For some of us, it just means to stop and to take time and to sit and think, where has the Lord shown up in my life? Where have I seen his hand? So often we're so go, go, go that we, yeah, thanks, Lord, got to go to the next thing. That we actually don't take any moment to sit and go, how has the Lord shown up in my life? Whether that's journaling or just sitting quiet. We can also, the way that we share this is, as we know others that have needs, we can move to comfort them. We can move to encourage them. We can be the hands and feet of the Lord. This is what David is writing. He's saying, do you know how good the Lord is? Do you know what mighty deliverance he's given me? And I want you to know that so that you would trust in him, that you would walk in that fullness. And he's so overwhelmed by the, the wondrous deeds and thoughts of God that he can't even number them all, but he's going to keep telling them until he can't talk anymore. Then in verse 5, he's saying, you're amazing. And it seems in verses 6 to 8 that arise out of David's gratitude and his praise. He's saying, it seems to me like he's saying, you have done so much for me. What am I to do in response? What am I to do? How, how, what is the response of me to this grace that you have shown me? Now, before I go on, I want you to understand that I do this in pure love. The flow that, he's, that David is thinking on is, is seen perfectly through the lens of Bob Dylan's song, What Can I Do For You? Dylan writes on his saved album, What Can I Do For You? You have given everything to me. What can I do for you? You have given me eyes to see. What can I do for you? You pulled me out of bondage, and you made me renewed inside, filled up a hunger that had always been denied, opened up a door no man can shut, and you opened it up so wide, and you've chosen me to be among the few. What can I do for you? Let me just make this public service announcement. It is my wholehearted opinion that the more you listen to Bob Dylan, the more you will understand the many deep mysteries and beauties of the world, and that's why I keep quoting him every time I preach. To do otherwise would, just, would be to starve yourselves unnecessarily. Now back to the program. What can I do for you? That's the response. What does the Lord delight in us as a response? David says it's not in mere religious ritual or performance. Verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering. 
you have not required. That phrase, given me an open ear, is weird. Like it, 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 you might look in the little footnote and it says, you'll see that some, it, more literally, like ears you have dug for me. Scholars are up in the air about what this actually means. Some think it refers to David making himself a slave. So if you recall, like in ancient times, they would, they would take an awl, like a little pokey metal rod, and they would stick it through somebody's ear, like they're piercing their ear, and it would identify that they are owned by someone, that, they, that there's a master-slave-servant uh, mentality. So they're thinking that, oh, maybe David's saying that the ears you dug from me, you, you, you've made me your servant. Now that works, but I don't think that's what it is. I think it's more that, 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 that David, uh, that the Lord has dug out David's ears, meaning he's unplugged them, that he's actually to hear the heart of the Lord and to obey accordingly. And that's why we, we, it follows in verses 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book of it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within your heart. It's no longer performative, but it actually flows in a response of praise to delight in God's way. Remember going back to that verse 4, blessed is the man who puts their trust in the Lord. He's saying that is the way of life. That's the way of flourishing. He goes, I actually delight that way because that's the way that I'm going to thrive to walk in the Lord's way. And so David said, Lord, you opened up your ears towards me. But it's interesting because this passage, it seems like David is passing himself and thinking about the future. And we know that because the writer of Hebrews actually picks up these verses, 6 to, six to 8, and pulls them together and helps us connect the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant with the sacrifices of the altar, the bulls and blood of bulls and goats, and how Jesus fulfills that is the ultimate sacrifice. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. For those that don't know about Hebrews, Hebrews is the writer convincing over and over again his audience that Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the priests. He's better than the high priest. And we see that his sacrifice here is better than the Old Testament sacrifice, the Old Covenant sacrifice, because he brings a new covenant. The author writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, this is verse 1, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Meaning, the Old Testament you had to sacrifice over and over again. It didn't actually wash you clean. It was, it was a shadow of what was to come. Verse 2, Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. They have to keep doing it every year, every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament has that, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, talking about Jesus, does away with the first, talking about the covenant, the old the old covenant, in order to establish the second covenant, the new covenant, which is accomplished through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And by that, we will all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was meant to point to Jesus. That's why just going through the rituals won't do anything. It's actually meant to show, the Old Testament was meant to show our need for someone better. It was meant to run up against the brick wall of the universe and say, I can't measure up. That's why I had to do it every year, every year, every year. But when Jesus comes, he comes on the scene as the perfect sacrifice, finishing and fulfilling all the requirements of the law. the perfect sacrifice. He came to deliver us from the ultimate pit, the pit of death and separation from God forever. This is the point that David's making. He's saying, he's pointing us forward to Jesus who is going to fulfill the sacrifice. And when we have been made new from the inside out, our, our obedience is no longer just ritual. It actually flows from gratitude. As I've prepared this week, I've thought about some of you who may be struggling and have been struggling for a long time. If so, I'm sure that waiting on the Lord has not been easy and talk of deliverance could be honestly just make yourself more weary. I've also thought about those who have been so accustomed to the pit of life that you've, you've just become apathetic and just go, well, this is good enough. Rather, and you just find ways to cope rather than turning to the Lord and trusting in him and learning how to flourish. And these verses give me so much hope, and here's why. Hebrews says that Jesus says these very words. He says, behold, I come. The old, the old version said, lo, I come, right? This is analogous to what Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Jesus willingly goes, I will go to the pit to stand with my people. God himself left the splendor of heaven to enter the miry bog. He does not stay away from our hardships, but he has put himself in the pit alongside of us. He doesn't go over them. He doesn't go under them. He goes through them. And it is in his coming that we experience the ultimate deliverance, his dying in our place, being buried again, and then rising again, that ultimately the deliverance means that no pit can ultimately keep us. 
Because in Jesus' coming, in his resurrection, he has punched a hole through the dark cave of the pit and holds our hand and walks us out into the light. Hardship is going to come. And until Jesus returns, we will all go down in the pit of our graves at one point. But even as we wait for our ultimate deliverance, here's what we see. God's presence does not leave us alone. God's deliverance is more than just for our comfort or an escape from our circumstances. It is realizing and embracing the God who is present with us, even in the pit. He is not indifferent towards it, but he's inviting you to turn to him, to trust in him, to wait on him for your good and his glory. It is to walk with Jesus, not to perform some religious duty, but to see the life with him is true and real, even if it's hard. And when we experience the peace of knowing and looking to our ultimate deliverance, the response is, is telling of it. It, it, it. it gives us a renewed and bold hope. David is recounting the ways that he is, the Lord has delivered him to strengthen him for when the next time hardship comes. Verse 11, if it's not underlined, please underline it. Golly, this is one of the most beautiful verses I've come across in the last year. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Here's what David learned by going through this season. The Lord is unrelenting in showing his children mercy. He will not restrain himself. The God of the universe goes, I will not hold back. What doesn't he hold back? His mercy. We deserve the pit of destruction, the miry bogs, but he joyfully empties out the storehouses of his mercy. Why? Because that's who he is. He is merciful to all who trust in him. Think about it this way. Because the father did not restrain his wrath on his son, he doesn't have to restrain his mercy on you. This is why all who trust in him are truly blessed. His mercy meets us in our need and we're preserved by his steadfast love and faithfulness. Whenever you see the word steadfast love and faithfulness, you should, it should trigger you some, in you something. Those are covenantal promised words. He says, this is, God says, I've bound myself to you as my people with a steadfast love that, that is the rock steady love that will not change and faithfulness. I will do all that I've promised to do because of who I am. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful, scripture says. His mercy is as sure as his covenantal promises to his people. When Eugene Peterson, uh, some of you guys may know him, he's a well-known pastor, he's a writer, most famous for the, the message, the paraphrase of the Bible. When he died a few years back, his son Leif uh, 
uh, in a eulogy said that, quote, that Peterson had fooled everyone that he had something new to say every Sunday or in every book. He said it was always the same message and that Peterson had said it every night to him. This was the message that Eugene would say to his kids at night. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. This is what David came to know. The relentless love of God that will not restrain his mercy to those who trust in him. Psalm 40 invites us to grab hold of this, to see it, to be in all of it, to come to trust in it. Receive the mercy of God and stand in the unfailing love and unending faithfulness of the Lord. The extent of his mercy is shown to us in the life and work of Jesus. And it is in him that we have our ultimate victory and peace life in the presence of God, even when difficulty comes. We sang the Awake My Soul song as we began. It's one of my favorite songs. In the end, the last verse is, as we stand on the edges of Jordan, with all the saints and the angels beside, when his glory is revealed, his grace draws me near. Still, I will boast only Christ. That's the hope that we invite us into. David is bolstered by the deliverance, particularly for the next time hardship is going to come, and it does. And we see that in verses 12 to 15. We're not going to spend tons of time here, but we see in verses 12 to 15, David's in the soup again. He says, enemies have encircled me. My iniquities have overwhelmed me. In other words, problems from the out, from outside, problems from within brought him back into the pit. And he's in trouble again. But he's experienced the Lord's deliverance, and so he is steadfast in it. And he says, all who trust in you, let them continue to say, great is the Lord, and, and Lord, deliver for them. Deliver for me. When we've experienced the Lord's deliverance, his unrestrained mercy, his steadfast love and faithfulness, we're strengthened, we strengthen our faith again to wait on him. David entrusts himself to the Lord, pleading with him to deliver and to bring justice to those who stand opposed to God and his people. I want, I want to just draw this out, and I'm going to wrap up in just a minute here. When David is waiting on the Lord, it's not stoic. Some of you are waiting on the Lord, and you're scared, and you're anxious, and you're fearful, and you're confused. Bring those to the Lord too. Those are the cries that the Lord welcomes, friends. We don't have to play stoic, I'm trusting the Lord. We can wait and be sad at the same time. I think David here is going, and again, help. I'm trusting, trusting 
I mentioned earlier that the U2 song 40 is based off this song. I think it's a perfect picture of what this psalm is inviting us into. Bono, the singer, actually just sings the first, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he, heard, he inclined and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit, set my f- uh, feet firm on the ground. But the refrain goes back over again, how long will I sing this song? In other words, I'm standing firm in your deliverance. I'm resting in it. How long will I sing this song? That's the tension of living in the already and not yet, of waiting for that ultimate deliverance, but resting in it, knowing that God is present in it. So where are you this morning? If you've never trusted Christ, if you're trying to still figure it out by going over it, by going under it, or by going through it in your own strength, it is futile, friend. The Lord says, I have storehouses of mercy that I long to unleash for all who trust in me. See Jesus as the great deliverer. Trust in him. For those who have been delivered in salvation, but also in difficult circumstances, praise and declare his works. Tell people. Tell one another that we might be strengthened. I will say that the Demarest group, the the DG, your prayer, the prayer of that group, they are both praying for requests and also praises regularly. And that's encouraging because they're building people up in that. They're strengthening one another in their prayers and proclaiming this is how God is showing up. And that strengthens them. Friend, if you're in the depths of the pit, You don't have to be stoic. I encourage you to wait on the Lord. Turn your heart and your mind and your soul over to him. Cry out with clear eyes about what you're going through to the Lord. But also do it with a defiant and resilient hope that David has too. I know in whom I've trusted. This is what he says. As he closes, he knows who he is. He goes, as for me, I am poor and needy. Friend, if you're in the pit, acknowledge that you need the Lord, that you are poor and needy. You can't do it on your own. But also hold fast to this. Lord, you take thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. We're all poor and needy. But be encouraged that the Lord has taken thought of us. So let's trust in him and wait on him in all seasons of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your unrelenting mercy, your steadfast love and your faithfulness, your kindness to us, not just to help us out, but Jesus, you came to experience the hardship that we might be ultimately delivered. Lord, I know that there are many who are in seasons of great difficulty and distress. We ask that you would deliver them. We ask that you would show them your unrestrained mercy. 
they would trust, on you, trust in you and wait on you. And that others would come and see and fear and trust in the Lord as well. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.